Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello there, this is Full Throttle, the motorcycle racing podcast from Eurosport. I'm Greg Haynes, and this is the edition for Monday the 29th of June, 2020. Michael Guy from Motorcycle News will be joining us shortly as we talk about the worlds of World Superbike, British Superbike, MotoGP, and indeed road racing, and so many things that have happened over the last few weeks, and what we can expect moving forward, both the immediate future, 2020, and a little bit further down the line with some rider moves having been announced for 2021, and some more expected as well. We'll get into that later in the program. But first of all, World Superbikes roared back into action with a test alongside some of the MotoGP teams at Misano World Circuit, Marco Simoncelli on the Adriatic coast of Italy for two days last week. They really did, once again, the superbikes, give the MotoGP machines a run for their money. And plenty of optimism now as well as we move closer and closer towards the provisional return of racing on the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of August at Jerez in Spain, which will be closely followed by Portimao in Portugal the weekend after. And both of those events, Jerez in particular, expected to take place in very, very hot conditions indeed. So similar conditions at Mizano last week. We caught up with a few of the riders. First of all, the Aruba Ducati pairing. Charles Davis, optimistic about the races ahead. Obviously, it's been five months, uh, basically five months without riding, um, without riding bikes like this anyway. Um, so there's a lot to um, a lot to get back into the swing of things. It take, took a little bit of time to get the, the feeling back, but I think you don't forget and you just need a little bit of extra time after a long break like this. But no, it's gone, gone reasonably well. Um, I feel like we've worked really hard considering, uh, obviously, it's... Physically, it's tough spending that much time off the bike, and it's hard to replicate you know, this this kind of uh, this kind of load on the body without actually having access to uh, to this this kind of bike at home. But um, I think that we've done really well, and we've worked hard, and I felt pretty good on the bike. Surprisingly, felt better than what I thought. So um, no, it's been been interesting. Uh, Learned a lot, and yeah, I'm looking forward to building on this in Barcelona in a couple of weeks. As for the reigning BSB champion Scott Redding, well, it feels like most of us have been putting weight on, doesn't it, through the lockdown? Not so Scott Redding. Um, the best thing I found here was to actually come back and be with the team again and uh, testing new parts, which I was really surprised how fast the guys turned around new parts for me, which uh, I needed to help me from the, the race in Phillip Island. And also to test, uh, I lost five kilos and uh, that could be the two tenths that I improved today. So it was good to test my body after some months off. Good to, to be with the team and find the feeling to be, say, on the limit more and pushing. And uh, it is weird to be back in a racing situation, but I'm very happy again to, to be again with the Ruba Ducati guys. And, you know, it was fun and uh, good to be back. So five kilos lost then for Scott Redding over this COVID-19 lockdown period. Chaz and Scott were not the only two Ducati riders on superbikes at Mizano last week. Leon Camio was there with Barney Racing, Michael Ruben Rinaldi with Go11, and also Leandro Tati Mercado with Motocorsa were yet to see them racing this year because they weren't doing the non-European events, of course. We lost Qatar, but we didn't see him in Australia, so we'll be looking forward to seeing Mercado 
from Jerez onwards. Kawasaki were there as well, and they've had a few tests recently. World Championship leader Alex Lowe, who seems very, very confident, but there's still a long way to go in terms of base setting after the unusual setup that's required in Australia. I've never had such a, a long break like everyone else, um, but it was a good test. Um, sounds strange, but I'm still learning a lot about the Kawasaki. Obviously, this winter, we didn't get too many laps because of the, the, the wet weather. And then, obviously, in the winter, conditions are quite cool. So to ride in such high temperatures, I'm still learning a lot about the bike. Um, the setup we had in Phillip Island, obviously, so it was a bit of a strange track. So we had to get back to more of a, a base setting. That was what we were trying to achieve at this test, just establishing a base setting for me and the bike. But we had a really good test, lots of laps. I did a full 20-lap race simulation, which was at the hottest part of the day. So that was good... Uh, Good training for me getting back into it and yeah really positive um like i said i've still got a lot to learn and understand about the bike but really happy with the feeling at the end of the test and uh, two good days working back with the guys obviously a big effort for them to get everything ready with all the you know, difficulties with the restrictions in place at the minute so thanks to them and looking forward to confirming the uh, the changes and the setup in uh, barcelona in a couple of weeks and of course, Jonathan Ray, multiple race winner and five-time world champion. What was it like for the Northern Irishman to be back out in action? It's been very valuable, to be honest. You know, being so long away from the bike, it's uh, it was a little bit strange getting up to speed. In fact, I, f I felt like I struggled a little bit in the beginning to feel comfortable. Um, nothing was coming naturally, but step by step, we worked with the bike. We tried lots of different geometries that we wouldn't normally get to try during a race weekend. And um, yeah, step by step, improved, improved my feeling, but... The uh, lucky thing is we still have a lot of uh, days testing left, so um, condition-wise I felt quite good out there. Uh, it was very hot, but that's going to be valuable because the first three, four races of the season I expect are going to be the same. And thankfully, Ray escaped a close to 160 kilometer an hour crash at turn 12 when he was pushing on with a qualifying tyre on Wednesday. You know, I hurt my ego a little bit. <laughs> I, I uh, ran so fast into... After the fast corner, the next one, there's a little brow on the, on the apex, and I ran over that and didn't want to squeeze the brake so much. So I picked the bike up a little bit and went straight into the gravel. You know, my expectation was there was some runoff there, but it was straight into gravel. So my motocross skills were pretty good in Phillip Island, but definitely ran out of talent today. Not easy, though, at the moment in terms of travel with quarantines in place all over the place. It means Jonathan Ray can't actually get back to the UK because he'd have to quarantine for 14 days. And that would affect the upcoming test in early July, which I will be attending. So I'll let you know if there's any interesting notes to take out of that one. But just how complex is it at the moment in terms of travel? Yeah, it's very complex because in the UK now we're under the, you know, like a quarantine, a 14 day quarantine. We have two tests scheduled within that 14 days, so it means I can't return home. So I have a, you know, my motocross day van. I loaded it up. Pretty much my life's in the van now. And I mean life, I mean with kids and Tars as well. So that's, uh, that was cool. We came down to the south of France and we're traveling with my coach Fabian and his family all together. So um, it's nice, you know, training together. And I spend a few days at his house in the south of France and we made our way over here and I'll stay here, you know, near the beach and um, do some motocross, cycling, and pretty much like every year. So um, looking forward to that and then looking forward to Montmelo as well. Well, that's good to hear, isn't it? The riders sounding very optimistic and who can blame them? It's been a long, long time for many of these riders, probably the longest time ever since they started their racing careers that they've not actually been on their professional racing motorcycles. Michael Guy with us now, the sports editor from Motorcycle News. It is great, isn't it, Michael? We've waited long enough to have some bikes officially back out in a test. Really, really good to see, Greg. Yeah, I can't really emphasise that enough. I mean, we've been watching all these guys, um, showing what they've been doing during lockdown, uh, during this pandemic, you know, the training they've been doing, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I'm sure, like a lot of us, we were getting a little bit bored of seeing these guys on push bikes. That's not why we watch them. We watch them. We, 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 you know, we, we follow them to see them on motorbikes doing as you know, the, some of the best riders in the world. So to see those guys back out there on track and, you know, we've, and we've had Ducati and Kawasaki, you know, the sort of two real big hitters of world superbikes going head to head after months off. And how difficult has it been as the sports editor of the weekly MCN newspaper that's been going for 60 odd years? How difficult has it been to actually keep 
putting a newspaper out there every week for the best part of three months now with nothing actually happening on tracks? Um, it's been it's been an interesting experience. I won't lie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's been times I think to start with you sort of felt like you were kind of sort of staring down in the barrel, thinking you know I've got space to fill each week and there's not yeah. much going on. But what has happened? It's kind of given us the opportunity to sort of do a lot of nostalgia to look back and to do kind of features that we'd never normally get time for, sort of things that would just be overtaken on the course of a normal a normal season. So in many ways, um, I've actually sort of enjoyed it. But saying all that, I am absolutely glad that we've got, you know, just over a couple of weeks to wait until MotoGP kicks off, obviously followed by World Superbikes and BSB. So I mean, to actually get some races back and to... Um, to be looking forward as opposed to back is always a bonus for a weekly newspaper, as you can appreciate. Yeah, let's just talk about those schedules then, Michael. How difficult is this going to be? Because I think nobody's imagining this is going to be an easy procedure here, getting these events underway. We don't know whether there's going to be crowds at all of them, or if not any of them. That's very much going to depend, I guess, on what happens, isn't it, now with this coronavirus situation, the COVID-19 scenario? Yeah, I mean, you know, forget put racing to the side for one second, you know, every, everybody's life has been, you know, spectacularly disrupted. Um, you know, obviously some, you know, very tragically. Um, but I think what we're sort of finding out is that no one knows the exact way forwards. Um, we've got all these dates on the calendar, which is fantastic. Um, that's obviously a, a major step. The testing that's going on in Mazzano um, this week obviously will be the first time that these teams have really kind of had to work as they will have to work, you know, in terms of, you know, social distancing protocol and PPE. All these are going to be challenges that they're going to absolutely have to iron out. Um, and they're going to be under the spotlight as well because there might not be fans there, but the TV cameras are going to be there. So we're going to see yeah. how these people are working. So it's going to be, it's going to be a big challenge. Um, I think the only thing we can be sort of rest assured with is the, the appetite that we all feel to go racing. The appetite we all feel to get this back on the road is, is so strong that we're going to, people are just going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. And Although there's a, a big part of, of, of what we do and what we like about motorcycling in terms of um, the spectacle that surrounds it, the bit that actually really matters is that, you know, 20 laps, 40 minutes of racing when the lights go out, that's what we're all really there for. So, yeah. And crowds or not, that will ultimately happen. Uh, and that's, and that's, where, and that's where we are this year. And I think we've just got to kind of embrace that, celebrate that, and then obviously hope long-term things do go back to the, the norm that we're all, all used to. Because commercially, if we take MotoGP as an example first, Dorna's main source of income is, of course, TV rights and the circuit hosting fees. So as long as these events are happening and being televised, there is some revenue there, isn't there? And that's so important for all the sponsors, trackside uh, the team sponsors as well. Yes, I guess there's going to be a big effect going forward, but it's a hell of a lot better than having no racing this year, isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. And as we've seen, you know, Dorna have been uh, offering you know financial support to some of the teams, and it's going to be um, it's going to be help in that way. Sponsors that you touched on there, Greg, is is going to be uh, something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. You know, there's obviously some um, some businesses, I, I guess, ultimately would have done quite well through this whole sort of pandemic but, yeah. uh, but the vast majority will have seen you know loss in profits etc cetera, etc cetera, and it comes to a decision as to you know if you're failing staff or making staff redundant can you therefore then justify sponsoring a motorcycle race team yes. you know these are obviously you know business decisions that you know i, I fortunately i have decisions i don't have to make but you could see why there will undoubtedly be some casualties from sponsorship across all the paddocks, I think. I don't think anyone's going to be immune from it, even MotoGP. Because as a small team, and we've already seen a few teams, haven't we, pulling out in the BSB paddock amongst the junior ranks, and I'm sure the same is probably going to happen in places like the Supersport 300 World Championship, some of those smaller Italian teams. You know, their core business is racing, isn't it? It's not like some of the bigger corporations that are manufacturers anyway, or they're promoting another product. These people make their money by going racing, don't they? So I suppose in some cases it's easier and more sensible and logical to just delay it for this year and come back in 21. 
I think there is something obviously to be, to be said for that. I guess, you know, these people, like you say, if it's their living, if they're looking at the figures and thinking, well, we can't do this and make any living and pay our own mortgage, then, you know, yeah. you're not going to do it. I think the only worry is that you, if you kind of pause a relationship with a sponsor, you know, are they still going to be there 12 months later? Mm, that's that's true. the kind yeah. of, that, 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 that's a big question. But, you know, again, these are unprecedented times and, you know, how the world is going to look in a month, two months, three months, six months down the line is kind of not anyone's guess, hopefully not. But you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's a lot of change still, still very much happening. So if we quickly go through the different categories, Michael, and you've been covering them all, let's start with the roads. Obviously, the Isle of Man TT is the showpiece event that was cancelled many, many weeks ago and pretty much all the other road events have as well. I suppose yeah. that's logical, isn't it? These are taking place in the middle of cities or the middle of the, uh, all around an island in the case of the Isle of Man, the structure and the, the infrastructure and the planning that has to go in place for that. You can't just move that around by a week or a month or so, can you? I guess you've got to either cancel it or stick to the original date. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Isle of Man at the end of the day, you know, it's got a population of about, don't quote me on this exactly, but, you know, about <laughs> 75,000, I think. Yeah. And then you've got another sort of 45,000 fans coming in from all around the world onto the island in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be top priority, even if it is a you know, big sort of source of income for the island. Um, you know, the Isle of Man have obviously, you know, they've got they've got their own government, they're very proactive in in, in the way they rule and they're able to I mean they, they shut down. You know, they shut down and they got the coronavirus very much under control. I don't think they've got if they've got any active cases now, I think it is, you know, it's you, know, you can sort of count on one hand, which is obviously a, a fantastic achievement. And you've also got to remember that, you know, yes, they've got a, a hospital on the island, but anything sort of serious, anything, you know, a hospital is not big enough to be able to sort of handle any sort of, you know, any any sort of pandemic. You know, people would obviously be thrown over to Liverpool with sort of the, the normal sort of court, uh, route people would take if they were seriously unwell so as an island i just don't think they had the infrastructure to risk it happening you know it would it would be potentially so damaging but but on the flip side it's you know it's one of the longest standing biggest single standalone sporting events there is and for it to not run you know last time it didn't run was 2001 when we had the sort of mouth outbreak that's the only other time it's been handled in my kind of you know sort of working life um so it's, it's, it's a big loss and it's gonna you know and, and with it being once a year you know you you you've essentially got to wait two years and the loss from you know the 1990 2019 event right the way through to 2021 so yeah a big big loss without a doubt and the same goes for north west the old gp was was not looking positive at all for it actually happening anyway. Um, there is talk about um, Cookstown happening, which is an Irish road race, and there is also Macau still things to be on the cards um, in November. But whether we're going to get the riders to go there and compete is sort of is a bit kind of up in the air at the moment. So yeah, the road season has been you know completely decimated, you know, one hundred percent. It also seems as though the trade shows have pretty much been completely decimated as well. And talking of November, we would have normally had Motorcycle Live at the Birmingham NEC in November, the Intermote Show in Germany a week or so later in November. Eichma in Italy is a very big one, which at the moment is still happening, but I can't imagine that's going to go ahead. Why though now, Michael? Because when they were initially cancelled a few weeks ago, a lot of people were saying at the time, it seems quite early to cancel a show in November. Is that just because of the planning that has to go into it? Did they have to make a decision? Was there a cut-off? I think it's twofold. I think, okay, I'm no scientist, but you've got to think having, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 people indoors in close proximity is a potential yeah. big risk uh, for one. But I think another factor um, is the fact that because of, because of the, the effect the pandemic has had you know, globally across, you know, supply chains and manufacturing, I don't think that the manufacturers will have their range of 2020 bikes to display or 2021 bikes to display as they initially planned. So mm. it's like they, there's the big show where they could showcase all the stuff they've got, but I think, you know, 
either not have the bikes to showcase or not be able to fulfil orders. So it's it's sort of a, a twofold problem, I think. Um, because I, I think we're going to see we are going to see a reduction in the amount of new bikes that are coming through because of just what has happened, you know, the effect of the, you know, and the effect is obviously we're feeling it now, but we're, we're going to carry on feeling it. Unfortunately, you know, it's going to, it's going to linger on without a doubt. Yes. That in turn is leading to further reports now, isn't it? About problems within the manufacturers in terms of redundancies and so on and so forth. I suppose it's to be expected, isn't it? And it's going to happen in so many industries all over the world. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I'm speaking to um, you know to the people within the, you know motorcycle dealers, and the kind of the, the sort of general feedback we've been getting since you know dealers have been able to open again um, at the start of the month was I don't think they're seeing huge new bike sales. What they are seeing is really really strong second-hand bike sales um and, and we think that is kind of people either that they've got a, a bike you know they're they're kind of a, a a leisure biker so they might have you know they might be lucky enough to have a panigale in the garage or something mm. and maybe they commuted by public transport to get to work and now they're looking at a second bike to get to and from work or it's people you know return either returning to biking, they haven't been out of a while, or new bikers. Um, you know, I think the sales of sort of scooters and, you know, small capacity commuter bikes is, is really strong, which is, you know, that's a, a small win in the grand scheme of things in terms of the motorcycling industry. But yeah, in terms of new bikes, I think we're going to see a few tough times for the manufacturers, to be honest. Let's hope it won't be too tough for the actual people competing in some of the championships as well. If we look at Superbikes, first of all, of course, and they'll be live on Eurosport and the Eurosport player. World Superbikes is set to kick off first. Well, I say kick off. It already has, of course, in Australia back at the end of February on the 1st of March as well, the Sunday there. But we're supposed to resume on the first weekend of August with Hereth, which in turn is straight after those two back-to-back MotoGP race weekends. Sporting news, Michael, in terms of World Superbikes, I guess the biggest story to come out of the last couple of weeks is the fact that Jonathan Ray has now re-signed with the Kawasaki Racing Team for, and we quote, a multi-year deal. We don't know whether it's one plus one, whether it's two, whether it's three, whether it's 11 years. We don't know, do we? I don't know whether that's because they don't yet know and they're going to decide as they go or whether they just don't want to reveal it to the world just yet. Um, yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, I would be intrigued to know. My kind of guess it's going to be a, 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 some sort of rolling deal. You know, yeah. there's no, there's, it's so clear to see the, the the relationship that Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki have formed with his, with his crew, yeah. them as a manufacturer. You know, it's incredibly strong. Winning five world championships and the bounce obviously helps quite a lot with the, the feel-good <laughs> factor. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're hardly <laughs> so, going to fire him, are they? Exactly, you know, and and Jonathan, you know, he's he's ridden on he's ridden for other teams. I think he had a good relationship with with Tenkarte Honda, but ultimately they weren't able to give him the bike. As soon as he got a bike capable of winning, he did what you know we we believed he could do, and he and he and he and he went out on one. So I think that the relationship is is is, is that strong that they're just going to keep on going and. And I'm sure the intention is to keep on winning. Personally, I guess you know maybe it would have been nice to see him swap around, you know, to to, to go to another manufacturer. But I don't think I think that's just for our own sort of satisfaction, really, and our own sort of curiosity rather than I don't think it would make him. I don't think you know there's, we, we have this sort of question in in for other championships, you know, about. A, manuf- a rider can only be a great if he's won on different manufacturers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, are you telling me Mark Marquez isn't a great? Are you telling me McDoan isn't a great? You know, it doesn't really wash in, in, in my book. Is it good if they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, Jonathan Ray has obviously had spells with Honda. Uh, that was one of the rumours, obviously, that you know Honda could be one of the teams that would be interested in in, in taking him back. Um, I mean, when I was working in World Superbikes, the Superbike reporter for MCN, 
you know, there was regular contact from Ducati with uh, Jonathan Ray. Davidai Todotsi was a, you know, who was managing the World Superbike Project at that time, was absolutely a fan and, and was, was keen to get him on board. But I think, I think for Jonathan 2014, all... they were very close, weren't they, Mike? I think they were particularly close. Yeah, well, I mean, I was actually, I'd actually finished in World Superbike, but even before that, there was absolutely times when it, it looked like it could happen, you know, because... Yeah. I think it's, you know, Jonathan's talent's always been pretty clear, really, isn't it? You know, um, and, and and it's just been borne out since he's been on a winning bike. So, I mean, I think it's, I think the, the important thing is he's, he's staying in the championship. You know, it could be easy to walk away, couldn't it? You know, he's obviously, and rightly so, made a lot of money and he's had a lot of success and he's a, you know, he's a popular guy, especially, you know, in Northern Ireland. And, you know why? You know he, he he doesn't have anything else to prove, but I think he's he, he loves it and he enjoys it, and he's not a kind of rider that sort of shirks from the challenge. And you know, there's been a lot of hype, obviously, about um, Scott Redding coming to World Superbikes, and you know the sort of uh, arrival or the rise of uh, of Top Rack. But I think he'll just be relishing these things, you know, because yeah, yeah. you know to because if he can win again and beat these guys you know top racks you've got to say he's destined to go to motor gp at some point you know scott's obviously a former motor gp you know podium man you know by him beating these people it just adds adds to the kudos doesn't it really so um i don't think he's going to be um i think he's going to be worried put it that way by the challenges he's got and jonathan himself was doing an interview i was watching online the other day and he said He's actually, it's fueled the fire even more being sat at home for a few weeks because it's actually made mm. him realize how much he loves riding. Not that he wasn't still loving it, but it's made him realize even more how much he loves riding and why would you want to stop? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen riders who retire at the top. Uh, I guess your, your, your couple of the most obvious ones are Troy Bailey, Max Biaggi, yeah. you know. And what do they do? They both came back. Yes, true. <laughs> You know, they sit around for a while, miss possibly a year or two of when they maybe even could have carried on winning, come back. You know, Biaggi got on the podium, didn't he? You know, he'd retired, been out of the sport, came back a couple of wild cards and got on the podium in Sepang, I think it was. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, You know, so, you know, incredible that these guys can still do that. But, you know, obviously it's a lot easier if you, um, if you don't, stop but i guess like you said the break that he's had he's almost maybe had a bit of a taste of what potential retirement could look like and he doesn't like the look of it (laughs) (laughs) and with with someone like jonathan ray as well he can easily do a carl fogarty and i think he probably will and stay with kawasaki as an ambassador well probably for the rest of his life and i think he'll also probably michael be remembering foggy's switch admittedly for more money but not that much more money to honda for two years he broke up a winning team in his own words and ended up going back to Ducati and winning two more titles, didn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was not the bike to be on then at the time. You know, the RC45 was very quick, but it wasn't the sort of sweet handling all-round package of the Ducati at the time. But um, no, I mean, I, I think there's, um, I guess in a way, he's, he's fortunate because he can look at all these sort of scenarios that have played out in front of him. You know, your Baylisses, your Biagis, your you know, your riders that have, have swapped thinking that the grass is maybe greener or they want to change. But I think, I think the key factor here is that, um, Jonathan is a very happy. I think Kawasaki are happy. I don't think he's been undervalued by Kawasaki. You know, I don't think they're underpaying him, for example, I think all that side of things. So, you know, if you can keep that all sweet and you're satisfied, it's like anyone, you know, any whatever job you're in, if you're if you feel valued, if you feel that you're being, um, you know, paid the sort of the, the, the right amount for, for what you're doing, then you're going to perform well. You're going to deliver, and you're going to be motivated. And you know, and I think Jonathan's the kind of uh, the, the the perfect sort of storm for all that. You know, he's totally motivated, well looked after, great relationship, and in a on a great motorbike. With and also, you know, with a manufacturer that don't have any other serious racing commitments, uh, yeah. apart from sort of BSB and the roads, but you know, in terms of full factory involvement, in terms of 
KHT in terms of, you know, full backing, they're there. Whereas obviously all the other manufacturers in, Moto- in, in WSB have uh, a system MotoGP project, a big system MotoGP project, you know, a project that is obviously the number one and Superbike is secondary. So, but that's obviously not the case with Kawasaki. And, uh, and I think the team and Jonathan sort of reap the rewards of that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people now who, as it often happens when somebody's dominated at times, criticise that person or that team, they're going to be looking back in the future and thinking, crikey, he was good. They really are, aren't they? When you watch back some of these race performances in the future. And it, we've said it before, haven't we? People said it was boring when Mick Doohan was winning, but look how he's looked back on now as an absolute legend. And I'm convinced the same will be the case with Jonathan Ray and World Superbikes. In terms of British Superbikes, Michael, we've got a six-round schedule, three races per weekend, no showdown. So every point counts now, doesn't it? You're going to have none of this talk that sometimes people said, oh, they're taking it easy. They're going for podium points. None of that anymore. And the first race of the weekend on the Saturday, I I think we might get a a real selection of winners, actually, because the real smart people who are going for the championship, they're not going to try anything too risky in the first race and risk losing three races if they really smash up their bike, are they? Absolutely not. I mean, I think a a DNF is, is you know one DNF you might just get away with, but yeah, much yeah. more than that. I think I think that's going to be kind of serious, you know, sort of championship assault over to some degrees. And the other thing you've got yeah. to remember is that the vast majority of the super British superbike grid will have only ever raced for the showdown. Yes, that's very true. They, they, yeah. they would have, you know, I mean, admittedly, they would have had experience in other championships in their way, British Supersport, uh, etc., British Superstock. But in terms of superbikes, they would not have ever raced without a showdown. So, you know, personally, you know, I think the, the trouble for me with BSB, you know, purely from a, from a, uh, from sports editor's point of view, MCN and and kind of continuing this, the excitement yeah. with BSB, you kind of always had, you know, you so much anticipation for the first few rounds, you know, to see who's doing what and new bikes and new riders on new bikes and just seeing how the sort of dynamic of all that is going to work. And then there always was that sort of lull period for me where, you know, the big hitters are, are just, you know they're going to carry on scoring points. You know they're going to be in the top six come the end of the year. And there's a bit of a flurry to get into those last places of the showdown. And then the showdown is obviously really exciting. But you ended up with a bit of a sort of a mid-season lull. And there's going to be none of that. And although it is only six rounds, all triple headers, like you said, you know, 18 rounds, you know, that to me is still a credible championship, you know. Yeah. I know they're going to be on the same weekends, but, you know, it's going to be more races than MotoGP. So um, if you look at it like that, so I don't really think it's, um, I don't think there should be any question mark over the sort of credibility of the championship. And I'm, and, I t- and I'm talking about that for MotoGP and WSB, even if there's not as many rounds as there is normally, I think the circumstances, the racing and how it's going to happen, I think the challenges are going to be different for teams, riders, manufacturers, crew chiefs, personnel, everyone that, Whoever does end up with the most points on the board at the end, you know, he's absolutely going to be a deserving world champion. I don't think there should be any kind of asterisk next to their name in the record books, kind of saying, oh, yeah, but that was a year that uh, COVID-19 hit and we only had this many rounds. I think the person that wins and and handles the whole situation the best, you know, he's absolutely a, a, a completely worthy champion. I agree completely. It's the same number of races for everybody. Everybody knows the rules they're playing to this season going yeah. into the first race. And if you think back to the very early days of Grand Prix racing, 1949, 1950, and so on, you only had six or seven Grand Prix per season anyway. And we still remember those guys as the real legends of the sport, don't we? Yeah, you wouldn't question their their, their credibility at all, would you? You wouldn't oh. even cross your mind to. So no, I, I, think it's a, I think that's an important one. And, you know, the crowds are there. Are some of them fantastic if they're not. Like I said earlier on, you know, to me, it, it, it's about that race. It's about it's about those forty minutes when the lights go out. That's what we. That's what really matters. 
Greg Haynes here, back in the Eurosport Full Throttle studio. I hope you're enjoying this edition of the podcast so far and the interview with Michael Guy. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the Full Throttle podcast from Eurosport. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can also find us through the Eurosport website as well. And we'll be bringing you interviews like the ongoing chat with Michael Guy and also rumours like this one that I've just heard over the last few days. Now, we can't say too much at this point in time, but this is definitely one to keep an eye on over the next few weeks. All I can tell you at this very moment is that I've heard from a good source that one of the riders in World Superbikes currently racing in blue leathers might be trading those in for another colour for 2021. Perhaps the colour of those leathers for 2021 may be white. Let's just see how that one pans out, shall we, over the next few weeks. But in the meantime... It's back to Michael Guy. MotoGP, interesting, very interesting indeed, intriguing stuff. And of course, with no track action having happened at all for MotoGP, they haven't had any racing this year because Qatar was just Moto2 and Moto3, and we were lucky to get that much. MotoGP, it's all been happening off the track, hasn't it? And a big announcement last week, of course, if you're listening to this podcast as it goes out on Monday, just rewinding to last Thursday, the announcement of Danilo Petrucci, who's leaving Ducati to go to KTM, but Tech 3 KTM, the satellite team, Miguel Oliveira will replace Pada Spagro, who in turn will be Mark Marquez's teammate next year at Repsol Honda. So where do we start there? Because my initial reaction, Michael, <laughs> is Alex Marquez and Mark Marquez were together. It's a PR dream. The two brothers... They're all over the place here in Spain. They're on adverts on the TV. They're sponsored by a yogurt company. There's cardboard cutouts in supermarkets. They're real national celebrities. But it seems to me as though it's almost as though it was always a plan for Alex Marquez to be there for one year because they've replaced him and he hasn't even had a chance to prove himself. Or is that just me thinking too much? I don't know. <laughs> like I say, <laughs> you don't really know where to start. I mean, oh. you've, got, you've also got to factor in that during this time, Mark Marquez has signed a four-year deal with Repsol. Yeah. So, you know, you could be very cynical and suggest that um, that that was that Mark that Alex Marquez joining Repsol was a lovely little sweetener to get Mark to sign a four-year deal with Repsol. Mm. And when <laughs> do you really when the, do, you, do you actually? Think, I know there will be plenty of people we both know who will think that. Do you? You think that is the case, or do you just not know? Really, we don't know. If you, no I one knows know. for sure. I, do I, 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 I don't know. I mean, <laughs> what I do know about racing is that manufacturers, team managers, yeah, there's some very, very clever and savvy people, and their objective is to win. And it doesn't really get too much more in depth than that. That is mm. that is the, the, the sort of one mission these guys have. Yeah, you know we see how focused crew chiefs and chief engineers get. You know they're they're every bit as competitive and driven as the riders themselves. Even more and, sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, you, you, you know you you work with these characters in World Superbikes. You know we could obviously name a few quite easily, but um, I think that they will do whatever it takes. They will do whatever it takes to to either start winning or carry on winning and and you know kind of without being you know disrespectful to these people or questioning their their judgment you know it's there's you know the, the sort of the, the the morals if you like can sometimes be questionable in racing you know we, we, we we've seen it throughout racing you know if you if you i mean different championship and just one that springs to mind I can remember when um, Paul Bird dropped um, Steve Hislop uh, when he was winning on the Monster Mob Ducati. And it was, you know, I you know, just started working at MCN and it was there was a huge outcry. You know, there was a real, real bad feeling towards it. Obviously, they signed Shane Byrne and Shane Byrne carried on winning and did lots and lots of winning and you know and you look back at it and you go well it wasn't a bad decision although at the time it didn't seem particularly kind of morally sound but they carried on winning and that is that is their aim that is their objective so it's kind of by any means possible but sorry i, I went right off on a tangent there, no but, no it's uh, no, it makes sense though i mean i was just going to carry on on that tangent and we'll veer off over there and then we'll come back but 
how much how important do you think it is michael as a fan as a as the sports editor of mcm but a fan deep down how important do you feel these team bosses care about the public's opinion and the, the outcry in that particular scenario do you think they it must affect them to an extent must not it knowing what people are saying about them surely um honestly i, I don't think it does i think <laughs> i think the, i think but i think the personalities the people you're we're talking about yeah you know, sometimes there are ex racers they want to be remembered for winning that's and, very and true that yes. what, yeah. and that is what ultimately they do get remembered for yeah, you know that's true. paul bird will be remembered for shane Byrne coming in in 2003 Winning the British Superbike Championship, I'm pretty sure, and yep. doing the double at what the Brands Hatch World Superbikes yes. and yeah. beating Neil Hodgson on a factory 999. You know, that's they're the things he will be remembered for ultimately, rather than the fact that he sacked Steve Hislop. Yes, you know, that's true. so I, I don't really think they're. I don't. I don't really think it's. Um, I think they're different personalities, and and that's why they do what they do, and ultimately that's why the successful ones carry on doing what they're doing and carry on winning. You have to be very selfish at times, don't you, to succeed in this sport? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and that's something that you know that riders will say, and you know, partners of of mechanics that travel all all around the world. You know. It's it becomes an obsession. Absolutely yes. becomes an obsession. Um, but coming back to Paul going to Honda and Alex Marquez leaving or being moved from from Reptile, you're right. It's sort of like where do you start? I mean, starting with Paul, I actually I'm actually really excited to see him on the Honda. Personally, yeah, yeah. I, I actually think that you know he's one of the guys. I know his career hasn't carried on the incredible progression of someone like Marc Marquez, but um, I was talking to a, a Spanish colleague of mine, Manuel Pugino, and he sent me a picture of um, Alex and Paul when they were teammates back in the championship on 125. It might have even been 80s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those guys went head-to-head in Moto2. They are, you know, I think, I think Paul is, is a really determined, really aggressive rider, that's not going to get phased by it. I'm not suggesting for one minute that he's going to come in and beat Mark Marquez because I think that's um, that's an incredibly big ask. But I do think he's going to. I do actually think he's going to be well suited to the bike. And I think that the years he's had, what four years now? It'll be four years this year with um, with KTM developing a bike. You know. We've obviously seen over history has shown, you know, that rookies coming in and riding on the Yamaha generally can be very, very competitive. You know, Pole was good. Bradley had some good rides. Cal obviously had some good rides. And then we've obviously seen Zarco, Quattararo, all these guys almost, okay, not all of them came from Moto2, but the ones that did almost seem to be able to make this sort of seamless um, progression from Moto2 to, to MotoGP on the Yamaha in particular. But Pole's kind of got more strings to his bow now because he's been on the KTM. He's, he's, it's clearly a difficult motorbike to, to provide. It's a powerful motorbike. But in terms of the experience KTM has compared with Honda and Yamaha, etc., you know, they're, they're way behind the ball. And he's been part of that development curve. And he's had to grit his teeth and ride around it, which, is, which he's shown pretty consistently that he's been able to do. And ultimately, you know, whereas Poe and Bradley were quite evenly matched on the Tech 3 Yamahas, to be fair. You know, Pole definitely seemed to have an edge over Bradley when it came to kind of just sort of grabbing the ball by the horns and really sort of just sort of, you know, sucking it up and getting on with it. And I think that some of that attitude will do very well with Honda because, you know, speaking to anyone, the Honda is also a difficult motorbike to ride. Um, You know, incredibly good and incredibly strong, but not the easiest point like to kind of exploit those strengths and I think that Pole potentially will be will be well suited so I, I actually think he'll go well on it I think you're right actually I agree um, I mean beating Marquez is not going to be easy at all is it but also it's worth remembering they are former huge rivals aren't they remember that 125cc yes. race at Silverstone 2010 I think it was I mean they were mad. they did not like each other very much did they at that time 
Yes, yeah, so that's also a great sort of dynamic. But what a change in dynamic for Mark, though, going yes. from having his brother in the team, <laughs> you know, his best mate almost, what it seems like, to yeah, having yeah. someone who you've got some needle with. But why though, Michael? Why are they replacing Alex Marquez, having not even had a chance to prove himself? He hasn't even had a single race, which makes me think perhaps this was always going to happen anyway. Yeah, you're not starting the conspiracy theories now, Greg. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> um, I mean, I could be completely wrong. It's just, just my inkling, really. I, I, I don't know, but... It's a weird situation, isn't it? It's, it is, you, yeah. Yeah, you, you absolutely... It, it's hard to kind of explain the sort of process that went through there, unless it was a plan from the word go. Maybe, you know, if, if Alex Marquez had gone out there and won four Grand Prix, which I don't think would have happened, but if he had, you have to think they probably would have kept him. Maybe he's just drawn the short straw and they've realised Paul Spargo is available and it's just, unfortunately, they're not going to have to... You know, they can't get rid of Mark Marquez, can they? No, no, exactly. And I mean, and I think in many ways, I think in an ideal world for 2020, Alex probably would have arrived and gone to LCR. Yeah. You know, in the first place, rather than come into such a high profile team as the Repsol Honda team. You know, if he'd have gone into LCR as a second rider, like Nakagami did when Nakagami came into LCR with Cal clearly as a number one rider. There's like very little expectation. There's very little pressure on them, and that's, you know, uh, you know, in, in, in another world where I was a MotoGP rider, that's how you'd want to arrive. Really, you know, mm. if you come in from Moto2, you want to come into a team and not be under the spotlights to some degree, and, and kind of learn your craft and get on with it. But um, it, it, yeah, it, it's strange. I can't really think of too many scenarios where similar things have happened um i think uh, I, I hope i don't get this wrong i think i think james hayden missed out on he never actually started the bsd season in for gsc ducati i think that was when lavia came in lavia became available and right. james was dropped for um for gregorio and that obviously went on to be a huge success went on to win the British Championship. This is, comes comes back to the, the conversation earlier in, yes, in you know, yes. team managers making tough decisions. So it, it is an interesting one. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. Um, you know, Alex is going to have to be pretty mentally strong to have had to deal with that. Um, and, you know, I hope he, I hope he does well. I hope he gets some good results on the, um, on the reptile bike. And, you know, and you'd like to think that, fast forward to 2021 he's going to be on some pretty good kit within the lcr team i suppose if alex marquez puts a positive spin on it at least he can say oh well i couldn't have done anything i could not have done anything this is not based on my poor performances on track for example because he hasn't had any he hasn't even had a race has he so i suppose at least in the back of his mind he can park that there and think oh well it is what it is but then playing devil's advocate why are they even considering getting rid of him when they haven't seen him race well, indeed, yeah, which that's what makes you know, me think perhaps that was part of the plan anyway, or yeah, unless Paul Espargo was just too good to turn down, I don't know. Yeah, unless they've seen, saw the, saw the data from from Alex, from, you know, the tests he did do and sort of thinks, hmm, he's got a long way to go to sort of get the boat and test out of our bike. Um, but that's a, that's a harsh line, really, you know, given that he had two tests on the bike, you know, to, to, to make the transition. But like you say, it might just be what they've seen from Paul and they think he absolutely is the future and he, you know, he can, he can be a, you know, a brilliant number two to Mark. Um, I don't yeah. know, you know, because as good as Mark is, there's always that sort of slight um, question mark over whether he can stay fully fit for a year, given him that, of crashes he has you know obviously he has largely got away with them crashes very little in races which is incredible but he does still jump off his bike quite often and um yes. you know yeah he genuinely does get away with it and he's obviously incredibly fit incredibly flexible you know he obviously spends a lot of time stretching yoga etc etc which is why he sort of bounces so well but he's also not as young as he was you know so all these things do make him probably a slight risk in which case you you know you need a 
you need another guy. And, you know, Honda don't want to stop their winning ways. And maybe they just thought, you know mm, what, we need yeah. we need another guy. We need to, we need someone else that could could take over and take take points off. Because that's the other thing as well is, you know, how many points, even if Mark is is Mark has any problems, how many points is Alex going to take away from someone like Dovi or Vinales or Quattararo or Valentino yeah. Rossi? Yeah. You know, realistically, he's not. So. You know, there's um, I'm sure there has been quite a lot of debate and some decision making over over this over the last few weeks. I think you're completely right there. I think you've hit the nail on the head in the sense that Repsol Honda know if anything does happen to Mark Marquez, if he falls ill, if he gets hurt, if he can't race for any reason, there is absolutely no guarantee that Alex would just suddenly then slot into that leading position. It's a bit like it's a little bit like I think when Tom Sykes left Kawasaki and they brought Alex Lowe's in, and it's motorcycle racing. You never know what's going to happen. But with the way things are at the moment, what we saw in Australia, it looks as though, you know, if Jonathan Ray's not at the front, if he has a problem in one race, they can pretty much assume that Alex Lowe's will be there or thereabouts. Whereas with yeah. Alex Marquez in his first season, he probably wasn't going to be right at the front, was he? I guess that's the risk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the tendency Mark has to, to crash. Yeah. which is pushing yeah. the limits, you know, to such yeah. a degree. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be, yeah, I think... I think the, the the great thing is, is you know, obviously 2020 season has clearly been disrupted, but we're about to get underway. I still think it's going to be an amazing spectacle because the anticipation is going to be so high. And we already know 2021 is going to be good because we've got, you know, there's obviously that's not the only change. You know, you've got Quattararo on a factory bike. We still don't know really what's happening at Ducati. There's talking, you know, Lorenzo coming back. I mean, not really so sure about that one, but, you know, there's, there's, there's already change ahead for 2021 and we haven't even started 2020 yet. So, um, yes, classic. yeah, yeah uh, it's going to be good. Just to complete that silly season conversation, what's happening with Dovi? Because the general feeling is he wants more money, but they want to pay him less at Ducati. Petrucci's gone to Tech 3 KTM, the satellite team, not the factory team. Why is that? Uh, and then, of course, are we going to have Rossi Lorenzo teammates? I know you've just mentioned it there with Petronas. It's not out of the question. But Rossi, Rossi will be on a Patronus bike next year, won't he? He's not going anywhere. I believe so. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Unless, unless he's you know woefully uncompetitive at the first couple of rounds at Jerez, which I genuinely don't think he will be because yeah. he's obviously strong there. Um, and I think Patronus, I think that deal almost needs to get wrapped up long before then. Anyway, I think that's kind of imminent, really. Um, yeah, Dovi and Ducati. I think it's um, it's a strange one. You know, there's no question that Ducati's, you know, profit and loss account at the end of the year, you know, they're a manufacturer. They sell motorbikes largely, you know, not only they build very good motorbikes, but they sell them on the back of their racing activities in MotoGP, WSB, BSB. You know, they will not sell as many motorbikes this year. They will not make as many motorbikes this year. They will therefore make less money this year. So that mm. obviously will be the reasoning they're looking at in terms of um, paying less money for, for Dovi. I think the question you've got is where else will Dovi go, really? Yeah, indeed. Um, that, that's almost, it's um, as, as coming back to Manuel, the, uh, the Spanish journalist who's been around a long time, he just described it as a, a loveless marriage the Ducati-Dovi partnership, which I think is probably quite true. It's a marriage of convenience. Um, you know, they're both together. They both they, they, they obviously perform well, but there doesn't seem to be much love, lo excuse me, love lost between mm. Dovi and, uh, you know, project leader Gigi Deligna. Um, but ultimately, you know, he's finished second the last three years. He's He'd be three-time world, you know, ifs and buts, but... If Mark Marquez wasn't around, he'd be three times world MotoGP champion, and we'd all look at Dovi in a very different light. Um, personally, I do think he's underrated. I think he's an incredibly clever and yeah. capable rider, um, and in many ways, he's unfortunate to be racing at a time of of Mark Marquez. But you know, there's plenty of races that have got that story. You know, all the races through the nineties and the races through the noughties with Rossi and. You know, races in the 90s when Fogarty was ruled in WSB. You, know, you wouldn't want him to be a WSB rider then. You know, it took some pretty special people to beat him. So, but the, the trouble is, is, you know, Yamaha are, are sewn up. Um, KTM are sewn up. 
um, Suzuki has shown up, where where is he actually? Where could Dovi actually go? That's the question. I think for me, it's more would he consider retiring? But I don't mm. think he's going to do that either. So my gut feeling is it will see Dovi on the Ducati in 2021. His outgoing teammate, Danilo Petrucci, there were a few rumours about him coming back to the World Superbike paddock. And you can imagine those rumours where they came from because he was in the World Superbike paddock before in Superstock 1000. He's on a Tech 3 yep. KTM, Michael, not the KTM factory bike. Is that pretty much going to be a factory bike anyway? I mean, is that a down... Is that a downward step for him coming from a factory Ducati or is it, was it just the move across, a sideways move? Well, no, I think you, you have to say that it's a, it's, it's a downward step. You've gone from a factory Ducati, a bike that's um, absolutely at the front of MotoGP to a manufacturer that is getting there quickly. But, you know, being honest, you're not a top MotoGP manufacturer as we speak. And you're going into a satellite team within that. Saying that, I think that the KTM satellite team and the MotoGP and the factory team, I think, are very, very close. I think that is absolutely a project where everyone is putting everything to it to get the best result and to make the progress of the of the, of the whole thing, you know, um, speed up as much as possible. I think um, that him. I think the decision. I'll be honest. I was expecting him to go. I just presumed he was factory team. That was mm. absolutely my assumption. I'm guessing he must have some pretty cast iron guarantees that he's going to be on the same level of equipment as Pinder and Oliveira. Um, so in the same way Valentino Rossi would if he goes Petronas, it might be a Petronas yeah, bike, but, but it's going to be the same, basically. But whenever they say that, it's never quite the same. No, it can't you be, know, can it? It? Might be. It might be a week or two behind. Mm. Um, but... I think Danilo could be really good for KTM. I think he's still motivated and we've seen how good he can be. He's just a bit kind of um, up and down, really. You know, he yeah. sort of had moments where you thought he really could be a man sort of breaking through. And then the next thing you know, he's sort of finishing outside the top 10 and not really delivering the results week in, week out, which obviously is not really what anyone wants. Um, yeah, that that's going to be an interesting one, you know, Binder and Oliveira, you know, two, Binder obviously a, a MotoGP rookie, Oliveira's got one year. I've personally always really rated Oliveira. I thought the way he goes about his racing, I thought yeah. he was such a clever Moto2 rider yeah. and really, really capable. Um, so I'm actually really looking forward to those, how those guys progress. I think, you know, as a manufacturer, KTM are going to, you know, they're going to, because they're currently behind, I think they're gonna they're gonna be progressing quicker than the other manufacturers, albeit they've still got a gap to close. But I sort of think, you know, you know, twenty twenty, I think you've got to, you know, not expect too much. Twenty twenty one, expect more. But you know, that's a that's a young team. You know, if you think you fast forward to sort of twenty twenty two, how good's that KTM going to be by then? How good are Oliveira and Indy going to be with a couple of years experience under their belt you know they could literally be you know they could be right up there so I don't think it's a it's a bad move but saying all that I think it's a real loss for KTM to lose pole because yeah. I think as we said earlier pole was a rider that absolutely was prepared to get stuck in and get on with it and even if things weren't going that great he'd knuckle down and crack on and I think that's a real a, a real skill and a real uh, talent to have, you know, sort of mental strength to have when you're on a bike that isn't the best on the grid and you know you're up against it. But, you know, it's kind of, you also see the same with Elish at Aprilia. You know, he never gives mm. up. He always gives yeah. it 100%. They've obviously got good work ethic, the, uh, the Escargaro brothers. Yeah, the benchmark, the benchmark brothers. Michael, yeah. obviously it's Thursday as we chat now, but this, of course, has gone out on Monday. Uh, two days from now, Wednesday, MCN goes out. What can we look forward to in the sports section this week? So it's going to be coverage from the World Superbike Test, which I'm really looking forward to that copy. I've got some good people on the ground there. We've got some sort of some carrying on sort of nostalgia theme. We've got a look back at all the sort of most successful father and son um, in racing. And there'll okay. be some some obvious ones, you know, you're... You have them, the uh, Rosses, etc. But also some other ones which uh, you will you'll, will be a good good trip down memory lane. You know, from Johnny Ray and John and John's yeah. father. Yeah. Um, you know, Ireland TT winner, and yeah. the list goes on and on and on. And we've also got 
a tech analysis from Matt Oxley. We've also got um, Freddie TT fans as well. We've got a really nice piece on the 1992 senior, which was, of course, arguably the greatest ever senior TT, where Steve Hislop and Carl Fogarty went head to head on the Yamaha and the Norton. Um, real, sort of really nice, actually, a real behind the scenes look at all the the events actually led to what was ultimately a fantastic race, but with riders swapping bikes and uh, deals being done. Um, so it's a really, yeah, really, really nice insight and gave us and gave us a good excuse to sort of fall through the archives at MCN for all the old images, which is always, uh, yeah, apart from you can lose a lot of time there, as you can probably appreciate. Um, <laughs> yeah, always quite a, a, a nice, nice thing to be involved with. I can hear James Whitham's voice in my head right now describing that TT in 1992. <laughs> and of course, I look forward to my signed Michael Guy copy of the paper hitting my front doormat on Wednesday morning. Absolutely. I'll personally deliver, Greg, as always. <laughs> Many thanks from all of us here at Full Throttle to Michael Guy. And unfortunately, now we have to end the podcast on a rather sad note because since the last show went out two weeks ago, we've had not one, but I'm afraid two tragic losses in the world of motorcycle racing. 25-year-old Ben Godfrey, we lost him just over a week ago when he was involved in a tragic accident, a track day accident at Donington Park when he ran into the back of another rider on the start-finish straight. A tragic, tragic piece of news to hear that Ben lost his life in that accident. He was racing in the National Pirelli Superstock 1000 Championship alongside BSP last year. And this year was actually set to be lining up on the grid in the Ducati Performance Tri-Options Cup. Now, the man who oversees the cup as the ambassador to the series is the 2009 British Supersport champion, Steve Plater. Ben Godfrey, yeah, a great lad, so enthusiastic about racing, you know, very passionate, always had a big smile on his face, you know, a lot of friends in the paddock. I spent quite a lot of time with Ben, you know, when he was riding for the uh, uh, IMR team in National uh, Superstock Fail Championship, walking tracks and doing various things. He's always trying to better himself, you know, and uh, luckily I managed to... Uh, time in with a ride with uh, Pete Hassler's team in the Ducati Tri-Options Cup for 2020. And most of the other competitors were quite scared he was going to be uh, pretty formidable in the championship this year. Thank you very much indeed there to Steve Plater. Some words there on Ben Godfrey, who sadly lost his life just over a week ago in an accident at Donington Park. More sad news as well, unfortunately, in the motorcycle racing world. In the middle of June, Pauline Halewood, the widow of Mike the Bike Halewood, absolute legend, of course, in the 1960s, has passed away. Pauline had been battling cancer for a number of years, and we sadly lost her in the middle of June. And with memories of Pauline Halewood on the line now, we have a good friend of mine and former MotoGP commentator on the world feed, Nick Harris. It was a pleasure to work alongside Nick in 2014. And one of the best memories with you, Nick, was when we used to talk about Mike Halewood. I remember a particularly amusing time in Texas when we talked about Mike the Bike himself. And I know you got to know Pauline quite well in recent years, actually. So uh, terrible news to hear of Pauline's loss, Nick. Well, as you know, Greg, uh, Mike Halewood was my uh, sporting hero, certainly when I was growing up, more a fan than a a, a journalist uh, he came from my part of the world he lived what a couple of miles from where i'm talking you know, just this moment his dad ran kings of oxford the famous motorcycle business so i was a massive fan pauline his wife i'll be honest with you i didn't know but i got to know sadly after mike's death when he was uh inducted into the motor gp hall of fame at the british grand prix at donington park i hosted the induction and i met pauline and his uh, son, uh, David. Uh, what an amazing lady to, to live through what had happened, uh, of course, in 1981, the car crash when Mike had uh, finished racing, uh, that he lost her, both his daughter, Mikael, and his own life in, in a car crash, when he was just going to pick up the family fish and chips uh, on a Saturday night, an accident was absolutely not his fault. So a very, very brave lady indeed. And as you say, Nick, it's been obviously years since we lost Mike in 1981 in that tragic car accident in Warwickshire. 
But, you know, in the time you've got to know Pauline, I suppose you must have, must have heard a few stories, actually, from Pauline. She told me lots of stories. The story that really stuck in my mind, uh, she said when he was driving a Formula One car in 1973, if you remember, uh, he had a, it was a terrible crash in Kailami in South Africa. And Mike Halewood, uh, despite his overalls being on fire, uh, pulled out uh, Clay Regazzoni out of a burning car. And um, for that act of heroism, he did receive the, the George uh, Medal, which is the highest accolade I think you can get, certainly in England, apart from in wartime. So an amazing bravery record. But she told me when he came back to the pits after all that had happened, he never even told anybody. He certainly didn't tell her that he'd pulled uh, a competitor out of a burning car and saved his life. And to me, that uh, summed it up very very sad news about Pauline Halewood. Uh, I'm sure she never fully recovered from losing her daughter and her husband in that car crash. Uh, but what some memories for her of a truly remarkable man. Well, Nick, in your own words, thank you very much indeed. Nick Harris there with some words on the late Pauline Halewood. We will be back with the Full Throttle podcast here on Eurosport on Monday the 13th of July as we get closer and closer to the resumption of racing, starting with World Superbikes, of course, in Jerez in Spain, the south of Spain, Andalusia, the boiling hot track as it will be there on the first weekend of August. If you have enjoyed the show, please take the time to subscribe if you can. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find us on the Eurosport website as well and other good podcast suppliers. But Thank you very much indeed for listening. Thank you especially to Michael Guy for the interview earlier on in the show. But sadly, at the end of this week's Full Throttle, we are mourning the loss of not one, but two motorcycle racing names, Pauline Halewood and Ben Godfrey. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 